Hey, this is Johnny Goodtimes of the Philly Blunt. On this episode, we talk with Larry Lavin. Lavin was a Penn Dental student in the late 1970s who started dealing pot to his frat brothers. By 1981, he was the biggest cocaine dealer on the East Coast. I first learned about Larry in the book Dr. Snow, which I read about 15 years ago and was fascinated by. Dentist by day, coke dealer by night, all the while moonlighting as a rap producer. This story is so nuts, I promise you're going to enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under The Philly Blunt. And please be sure to subscribe. And if you enjoy the show, give us a five-star rating. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Philly Blunt. My name is Shiny Good Times. I'm Reef. Hey, this is Greg. And uh, we have, uh, we're very excited to have our guest. We're doing something a little different this week. We're our first ever phoner. Nice. Yeah. Phone time, baby. Yeah. So first ever phoner, and uh, we are doing it with Larry Lavin, who uh, used to live here in Philly, uh, went to Penn uh, for a few years, and uh, eventually ran a rather large cocaine <laughs> empire, uh, I guess, <laughs> just to get straight to the point. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're going to talk to him a little bit about that, a little bit about uh, what life was like at Penn uh, back then, and we're going to talk about what his life's like today. So a lot to cover. Uh, Larry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to hear from you guys. Yeah, man. Yeah, Hello, thanks, Philadelphia. Um, do, you miss, uh, do you miss Philadelphia at all? Oh, yeah, a lot. I came back for a wedding. My friend Billy Models. Mato's daughter, Billy, got married, I think it was about two years ago I was back there, so I spent a few days. It's changed a lot. Yeah, yeah, a whole lot. Well, when was the last time you'd been here before that? You know, believe it or not, through the whole federal prison system, we drove through one, I think I was coming back for a uh, appeal hearing, was, and that must have been oh, a long time ago, I'm talking 20, 20, years, 20 plus years ago, mm. like that. And of course, you don't get to see a whole lot of one of those rides. Right. So. Right. <laughs> Are you from Philly? You sound like you're like from Boston or something. I, sure I am. I grew up in northeast Massachusetts, okay. real mm-hmm. close to Got New a Hampshire brick, brick border. Brown. And uh, it's funny. I don't lose that accent as much <laughs> as most other people. Yeah. So when, uh, I remember I went to uh, Phillips Exeter, and one of my first tests in chemistry, this teacher passed back the exam and said, someone here spells like he talks. There's no R in <laughs> formula. Because I spelled formula with an R in the end of it. It was just funny. Right. So, yeah, actually, strangely enough, you're our second guest who didn't graduate high school and still went to Penn. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, Victor Fiorillo writes for Philly Mac. Uh, actually, same, same situation. Uh, ended up going to Penn. Um, so right. you go there. We're talking, uh, what, early 1970s, right? Right. My uh, graduating class would have been 70... I went in 74 is when I started. 73, I finished Exeter. Okay. Abruptly. Okay, so you go into Penn, and you go in as a freshman, you start making friends, and that's when you kind of, I guess, found out more about sort of the way drugs and so forth was at, on a college campus. What, what were parties like at Penn back then? So these different dorms within there would hold keggers and whatnot, so I got to know people very quickly. Um... So it was a fun atmosphere. There was a lot of uh, acid, all types of pills and things like that available, speed back in those days. I mean, people were driving around with bands full of, uh, back then it was mostly Mexican pot. Mm, the, the brick. I remember people, people would pay you $5 an hour to like put out sheets of blotter acid and 
and stuff. It just was so free and open. It's just really hard to believe that how different things were back then. You were you you joined a frat, and is that when where it always goes wrong? That's right. Uh, is that where um, the dealing started, or was it the parties where the dealing started? It was. So what happens is when you join a fraternity, and at the time you got to remember, I went off to school with like twenty bucks in my pocket. Right. I'm working as a librarian. I'm working as a uh, as a lifeguard at the, in the gym. And so when they start pledging, you start to meet people. And this one particular fraternity, Phi Delta Theta, um, was pledging me among some others. And they just seemed like a group, good group of guys. And you could live in these fraternities back then extremely cheap. I mean, literally, I think it was $400 for a semester for your rent. Damn. Wow. And, uh, where, was the, where was the frat house? 37th and Locust. Every fraternity in those days had someone who dealt. Well, that fraternity had someone, I'm not even going to name, that was a very astute, very good deal of it. He believed in getting a lot of things and kind of splitting up with the fraternity members. They're not really making any money just doing it so he'd get his little stash. And right. I, I quickly meet his contacts. I remember we went home to his house once out in uh, Western PA. He came in on this plan for Appalachians uh, residents to be brought into Penn. And I handed him like $500. I said, you know, I made this off of your buddy uh, last week. And he was just astonished that anyone could make money doing this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he just thought it was he just, just enough to weed. Weed, free weed. Yeah. <laughs> right. And we just got carried away. I mean, one time I remember my fraternity members, they kind of had an intervention. They came and talked to me and said, you know, Larry, we go down the, the, the paths on the way to classes and people are stopping us and asking, what does Larry have now? You know, what's, what's available? <laughs> And so I had to fire back, well, wait a minute, what do you have in your, don't you have something you hold it for me in your uh, refrigerator or your freezer? When's the last time any of you paid for any drugs, you know, right. <laughs> or, or almost anything else? So it was just really funny, the whole thing going on. So, so but about that, I moved out after that. That was after a couple so of years. The guy who connected you the, to all this, you won't name, it's not Donald Trump, right? The pen, were you guys a pen <laughs> the same time? I wish it was. I definitely would name him. <laughs> <laughs> You know, obviously, this was almost all pot. There are other things like hash oil or hash, and you know, sometimes people would bring these exotic things in. Like, uh, uh, do you high, still have hash connections kick. in Philly? Just asking <laughs> for a friend. <laughs> I'll send you a text later. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you um, uh, in the 1970s, it was a crackdown on marijuana, correct? And was that was that what kind of set you in? Was that what kind of set the wheels in motion in terms of moving over to more toward cocaine? Totally. So what happens is Reagan changes the um, the line in the on our oceans from on our ports and whatnot, off our coasts from three miles to two hundred miles. So the Coast Guard could board any ships that came within that two hundred miles. It used to be down in Miami, people would sit three miles off these big freighters, and they would have like 50 tons of, of pot, like Colombian pot. Mm. And people would go out with those you know, fast boats, and uh, they could be back so quick, it was almost impossible to stop them. Right. You know, and, uh, each one might just be bringing 300 pounds, but it was such a quick trip, they could do it in you know, minutes. And, uh, mm. But then when that happened, it became kind of you know, a lot more difficult. And I, I don't know if you guys read Mark Bowden's book, but he has a great title. Yeah. Where I, once, I was talking to a friend of mine who had connections in Miami, and we came up with the line, you know, why carry an elephant on your back when you can put a mouse in your pocket? You've got to realize, you've got all these connections set up. There's kind of like people relying on you. you know, I had all these different campus networks and people, you know, up and down the East Coast. And, 
but how do you how does that expand i mean to suddenly you know you've got a guy talking to cubans in miami like that's a whole different ball game than talking to college kids in blacksburg right well everyone kind of has a connection somehow and i was pretty good you know obviously i'm a pretty uh you know, easily friended person. You know, I, I make contact really well. And like one of my friends that lived out in the main line, he was a little bit older and he uh, had a Cuban girlfriend and fiance, I believe. And uh, he had a couple connections and he was the one that told me we could do it. So we pulled our money and bought like a half key, like the smallest buy that I'm surprised he even sold it to us, you know. What right. did that cost back then? And believe it or not, keys used to be $55,000. Where you know the, the price tumbles over years down to like fourteen thousand, right. but for the longest time, you know we would buy keys at fifty five thousand. By the time we, you know, broke it up and um, put whatever cut, depending on which product we give people, it sold for about seventy five thousand. Jeez, you know, and, uh, what would you, you cut know, it? What would you cut it with? Inositol, you know, it's a vitamin B product in the uh, lidocaine. But how you develop it is the fact that. We had something all the time. So once a week you could come and you know pay what you could and we'd pay and give you more and so your business would grow by me fronting all this. So if you came and wanted, you know, a half pound a pound, I'd say, you know, Johnny, don't, don't what the heck, why don't you take two pounds this time? And, uh. you know? and uh, so that's what made these things grow. Unfortunately everyone's debt to me grew because a lot of times they had people didn't pay them, they did too much product, they you know, whatever happened. So what would you do like when, when this uh, the big debt was owed and you just did you would just let it go? Yeah. What good to do you to get in trouble by going after someone? You know, you try right. to work with someone, decide if it's worthwhile, if it's not, you just And then also they, the point. Yeah, they, they lose the connect to you if they don't that's pay. That's exactly right. No one wants to do that, you know, because they've got this, you know, the golden ticket. So all they have to do is to be responsible. And so Mark Stewart, that, that was your, your financial advisor. He was actually Fred Shiro, Flyers coach. He was his financial advisor too, I believe. <laughs> Mark was a pretty impressive guy to me. He had this different real estate and the lawyer that hits me up with him told me, you know, money is king right now. He can take cash and invest in different ways. And, you know, little did I know that, you know, Mark unfortunately had the ability to spend money just endlessly. And he would, you know, hire everyone, the record company, pay him 50000 We had, you know, monthly phone bills of 50000 It's really easy to, you know, blow through money. But, but, were, but weren't you kind of trying to blow through money at this point? It wasn't too much cash becoming a problem? Well, you don't want to lose it, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. After all that time you took to make it, especially count it, you know how hard it is to count that much money? Damn. <laughs> I do not know, man. No, we do no, not. I do not know. And I, that's something that I, I know. Can't, like, I know like $10 in pennies sucks. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I wanted to ask, like the record label thing, man. That shit sounds so far left. So, that's that's yeah, the most interesting okay. thing. I mean, you've, you've done a lot of interesting things, but that story to me, because I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a hip-hop artist myself, that, that whole thing is just like bizarre as fuck to me so break that down the, the record label right, so the we're talking d- Frankie yeah. Smith yeah. and we're talking <laughs> Double Dutch you, Bus you're part of a big one of the biggest reasons that hip hop exists straight up that, yeah. that, that song is like a, a cornerstone <laughs> for the culture especially a Philly hip hop sure. absolutely yeah. Yeah. you know what's funny when I walk in some of the bars here if I go out to dinner sometimes stop in a place don't play that song. A lot of people know that. It's just oh, they're like that. Sh- they're showing you love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, so what really happens? Mark has a company called TEC Records, and it's a small company. And um, with my money, he's able to buy out some called WMOT Records. 
and they had uh, more artists and you know probably more talent as far as knowing how to find artists and things like that but the hard thing was it's almost like the drug business and that Mark would front albums out to these stores in Philly New York and they wouldn't pay and they're supposed to pay within say 30 days well in 90 or 120 days all of a sudden they were going to return you 5,000 albums welcome time. to so, the music business <laughs> yeah. so those returns are a, a bitch we signed a contract with CBS but when you use CBS you have to use you know, their print for their print and the records and their promotion, they end up taking like 73 cents out of every dollar. But we'd get these huge checks, like a million two or something from CVS, but at the same time, his bets were running up higher than that, you know, spending money. But it had cost a lot. You know, even back then, the recording time for an album might be 25000 or something. You know? and, uh, but, you know, what did I really care? I just didn't want us to get in trouble. I wanted to get my... I was only drawing like a $70,000 paycheck. Right. I just wanted to get through this time. And since, and since the beginning... Wait, only? Since only? Since, what year was that? Yeah. that was 70 grand in the 80s. Yeah. Since the beginning of time, this is how music is funded. You know what I mean? Like, right. So, oh, so, yeah. so, by the way, oh. can I make a comparison now? And I don't know if you've seen this, Larry, or not, but can we... I think a comparison to who Larry is, Stringer Bell. Stringer Bell. Stringer Bell on the wire. You just the guy, to be, yeah. the guy who was in the business and was trying to find a way out, but couldn't quite find a way out. Right, because you were surrounded by people that didn't want to get out. Right. Yeah. So, yo, tell me what uh, happened with Frankie because I read, yeah. I read a quote that said that you said that if he would have just come to you, you'd have paid him triple of what he, what he, what he wanted. Oh, easily, and made sure he had a good time, take him out somewhere, it would have <laughs> been fun, you know. But we didn't really have a relationship. I mean, I knew him enough to say hello. I remember I used to go into clubs like Elon's, and I'd, I'd have like 20 of his albums, and I would just sign his name, because who knew, you know, and uh, <laughs> hand them out, you know. But um, Were you aware yeah. of how big a hit the song was? Well, how do you think it got to be a hit? <laughs> right, right, I right. Mean, Grease in the palms. You got to understand how much money I probably put a million dollars into making that a hit, you know. But so the whole time you're thinking that Mark's paying the guy. You're assuming that Mark's paying Frankie Smith. Oh yeah, I never knew he wasn't being paid. I mean, I would have easily. I mean, I paid so. I mean, I met this one girl who worked for the accountant, kind of knew it. She came out. She needed some dentures and stuff. I did that. I bought her a used <laughs> car. You know, what did I care? You know, I just wanted everyone to be quiet and, and go on with their lives, so I could go on with mine. You know? It seems like you had a very uh, spread the wealth mentality. Right, yeah. So I wasn't too concerned with that. I would have taken care of him. I just didn't know he was getting screwed like that. And uh, but unfortunately, you unfortunately, the FBI talked to him before you talked to him. Right, and unfortunately, I wasn't. You know, I was just trying to get away from Mark. Can I ask you why you're running all these drugs in Philly? How does the Philly South Philly mob? Do they get wind of you? Do they talk to you, or how do they not know you're cutting into their business, kind of? They just didn't know about it, and you know, they had no <clears throat> clue. They were like millions of dollars getting lost in West Philly in the yeah. coach. Right? How how was I mean? You like got Billy D- from uh, South Philly. Billy from South <laughs> Philly had to know people in the right. mob. Well, you know, Billy was. You know, I just really don't want to say anything about Billy. So, so no, no, no. I'm not trying to incriminate him. I'm just saying that if you you're in South Philly in the he, '80s, his father was a book runner in uh, at one point, and they had this produce business. And most people believe Billy was uh, just doing book, and that was a very good, or would be a very good cover if someone needed to cover something. You know, everyone thinks he's making his money from that. And you know, it's a younger generation and. I don't know. I'm sure people knew at some time, at some point later on. You know, obviously they knew once the the stories came out. But you know, there's there's mob like that that's into protection money and all that. And then there's a whole another organization that's come around that's 
dealt with dealing drugs. That just wasn't part of when you go back to Bruno and those types of guys. They just weren't doing that. Right. That that, that kind of came around with his death, which was probably toward the end of your dealing career, I guess, early 80s. So so they were a whole different thing that they were making their money off. They had the rackets and prostitution and stuff like that, I'm sure. So your, your drug runner says in the doc that he tried to talk you out of the game, basically, and he said, Larry had everything to lose and nothing to gain but more cash. So I have to believe there was something more than money motivating him. What was it that was motivating you? Well, some of what we already touched, off, uh, touched on, I didn't want people to go down in my, you know, in my wake that if I stopped doing things. I mean, I had a, a brother, Rusty, that was doing things, you know, that, you know. These people, if they, it, he wasn't that smart. I could see him easily getting busted. So I think I had to protect that to some extent. And I, you know, I still had like oh, two, three million dollars in bad debt on the books. I kind of wanted to, you know, pull some of that in if I could. So I guess that type of things. But it really wasn't that long of a time period. You know, if we start dealing in, I don't know, the late. Uh, I guess when we finished down school it was eighty one. So it's probably sometime like from. 79 to like maybe 83 that time period I think those are the years I was indicted the years I had the test stuff. So, so it's hard to say what kept it going but I think it was that's, it was easy money and it was you know I've got to remember at the end when I had my two partners running it I don't have to do anything day to day it literally might take once a week meeting with them and go over the books or something like that you know? so tell, how nice that is him. tell me about D-Day like the day like the, the they come running in with the warrants kicking down doors like what what's going through your mind is it your plan from the door like if this ever comes this way we're going to run like so you got to understand what's going on here for a few months you're getting every day in the mail some type of copy of a subpoena that like a guy I used to put safes in different buildings he's telling me Larry you should have let me know I would have destroyed these records but they've given him a subpoena everyone had bank accounts and uh, so <clears throat> you know they're investigating you do you feel, do you feel like the this. walls closing in? Are you getting paranoid oh, yeah. at this point? Oh, yeah. You know, so I'm going and talking to lawyers and trying to get ready. The actual final day is somewhat absurd. I I had made up a, um, a stamp that I would make fake IDs with it. It had to do with um, making a, birth, a uh, baptismal. And it was one of those stamps like you would stamp a book for your li- personal library that you get from the Franklin Mint. And I altered it to, so it would say, uh, like, St. James Church in some town. And so I have that, and I want to get rid of it. And I have some documents where I lent a guy that uh, is dead now, so I can say this. He had wanted to buy a business in Florida that canned those juice that you see when you go in a diner, you know, those juice that's in those bubblers. The reason we wanted that is we were able to put the cocaine in those cans, and he was able to drive it back in cases that were sealed up so it was much more safe, you know. Well, he took out a loan with me to buy this whole business. I said, well, I don't want this. And I, I, these paperwork to be found. And I didn't want to throw anything in my trash. I thought they were picking up the trash. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to throw in the, all these things and a couple other things in the dumpster across the street from my practice. There was a, a, a Roy Rogers over there, so I'm going to throw it in there. So I come around the corner on Ashburn or Frankfurt, and I, I don't turn into the parking lot for my practice. So the cops think I've seen them and running, the FBI. Next thing I know, like, literally, I swear six of them leap on top of my 733 BMW. <laughs> and they've got shotguns. They're pumping and screaming at me, you know, stop the car, take, put your hands up. And I'm trying to yell back at them if I, you know, 
if I take my foot off the pedal, I'm going to run you over. You know, it's a, <laughs> right. it's a standard, you know. Right. And, uh, so finally they, they get all that and, uh, you know, I get out and they find those documents. It's unfortunate. And I remember they're cuffing me up and I said, can someone tell someone in my practice so that patients won't have to be waiting all day? Says, I'm going to go in and tell him you're a drug deal. And the other guy, Sid Perry, said, uh, <laughs> That sounds like a fake. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to let him know. <laughs> yeah. Dennis is a drug so, dealer. So that was a rough day. Then you go down and you go into the federal building, and there's uh, eight of us there that they no, were No, no, let's day. get back to the parking lot. I mean, are you just scared shitless? Are you, uh, what, are you what are you thinking as these guys are jumping on the freaking hood? Well, plus with shotguns and whatnot. <laughs> right. I, uh, well, the thing that's funny is we told them that I'll surrender myself anytime they want because they've already had me in for fingerprinting. Once you're a person of interest or something, they do that. And my lawyer goes with me, and um, he won't let me answer any questions. So when they start, when they go to cuff me, they want to know, what's your name? I said, I'm not answering any questions. <laughs> So you post bail and what you go home and say, babe, we're getting the fuck out of here. So I go home and she posts the bail and she says that I'm walking so fast. You can always remember that. And uh, you get home. You don't know what it's like when you walk into your house and you turn on the TV and every channel you turn to is you. Has built about you, you know, and it's, you know, it's bizarre. It's a, is, it, is, it, it. is that overwhelming? Is there any sense of ego or like, oh, I'll, you know, they're all talking I'm, about me? Or is yeah. it just like, oh, I'm, shit. I'm, I'm it's, John Dillinger. Right. Or, or <laughs> oh, shit, this is real. It's overwhelming and real in that you got to stand before this. I really thought I was going to be able to pull this off to just be an IRS case. Yeah. I didn't realize it was going to get to be more of the stuff. You know, I thought that, see, back in the day when, I know this is, sounds crazy to say, but no one in my prior experience had ever talked to the government. Everyone took whatever came their way, and we got them good lawyers, we bought them a house afterwards, made sure their life was okay or something. And I just was too naive not to realize that everyone was going to talk. You know, that's what damn. came down So, to. damn, all your team flipped on you? Pretty much. There's only like uh, two people that didn't talk between Billy and I in the whole case, I could say, you know, out of 86 co-defendants. But that's just the way it is. The government can bring these forces. They're just unbelievable when they tell you, you know. You know, I start thinking, you know, what do I got to do to mitigate this? In my mind, I'd already planned on going on the run to Virginia Beach. Can I ask, though, weird. man, why Virginia Beach? Like, you have enough money to leave. Like, why? Why? That's, yeah, why not that feels, Mexico? That feels so close to Philly, man. I don't know. It's a five-hour so drive. Yeah. Right. There's some real reasons. Virginia Beach. So I do quite a bit of research on this. First of all, I want to live. I want to live with, by with, the ocean. with no internet. <laughs> right. Right. I want to live by the ocean. And the uh, the other thing is like Virginia Beach at the time, the average person lived there less than three years. So you're not moving into a neighborhood like you move into Northeast Philly, and you know your great grandparents right. yeah. live on that street. Right. Or yeah. Everybody's like, "Who's the new guy?" Yeah. 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 Right. And the other thing is. I had someone I, I had someone fly to the Bahamas in my name, and I let everyone I know think that I'm going to Ireland because, you know, I was Irish and uh, mm-hmm. I'm Irish. And, uh, so I thought that that's what they would really look for, and I just felt I could blend into this place as opposed to... At one point, I wanted to go to Brazil because, you know, my wife was praying if you have a baby, you become a citizen, but she felt it wasn't our kid's crime. We ought to let them grow up in the States. She didn't realize with that much money, you can... Uh, you know, have a good life anywhere. Right, right. But anyways, my co-defendant is cooperating with the government, and he, uh, but he's meeting with me, and he has me 
telling people, listen, if I call, just hang up on me. I don't want to hurt anyone, but I'm trying to get a reduction in sentence off this. But he wants me to collect money that's owed to him. And if, say, you owed him 100000 and you owed me 100000 from bad debt, he says, you can collect your first. What's ever left over, you can give me. And, yeah, I collected quite a bit for him. I can't remember what it was, like a you know half a million or a million dollars. And uh, so I meet with him, and he's telling me what the government knows. I mean, we meet like every other night, and I use all these electronics I had to make sure he's, you know, after having him stripped down and all that, making sure uh, he can't be recorded me. And he tells me he's going to... Um, they're letting him take his kids so, to So when you're meeting the guy, coffee. you're like, you got to take your shirt off so I can make sure you don't have a wire? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I know he's working with the gummies. He's telling me he's talk with them all day for four or five-hour sessions, you know? Right, right. And, uh, so, but anyway, so I always remember he... Uh, he looks at me and says they're letting him go to uh, Orlando to take his kids to Disney, and that's going to be it. If, you know, they're going to put him in jail for that. And as he turns away, he turns back and says, God damn, I'm never going to see you again. I said, what are you talking about? He says, you're smart enough. You're going to run. He says, you know, I told him you're going to run. I said, you motherfucker, why'd you do that? <laughs> he, he says, I told him that you think you're so smart that you're going to exhaust every legal remedy, which was somewhat my thinking, and then you run when you see that there's no other chance. So I bought you a bunch of time. Good luck, my friend. And he was right. As soon as he left, I knew that, you know, otherwise Jesus he would meet with me every day. He would tell the FBI Larry missed his meeting, you know. So now he goes away for a week. Little did I know, he actually goes down and sets up his Colombian connection. They get 92 kilos. And uh, why well, I'm thinking supposedly in Disney, but that's... <laughs> That's when I go on the run during that. I had to go right now because I knew he was away. And, uh, oh, wow. It was, it was interesting. So, Larry, you were, know, you, so were, you, were your parents alive when all this happened? They were alive, and uh, obviously it was harsh on them. I think, uh, you know, the story made several front-page things on our home paper. And uh, my parents are dead now. It's, it's kind of bizarre. Philadelphia Magazine did some story on there. I think it was that one. And uh, one of their friends that lived in the area cut it out and sent it to them. That person had tried to sell me... They tried to sell me like a 20-year-old Mercedes that was barely ran, and I didn't buy it. I was as nice as could be, but, you know, they had fallen on hot times. They lived on the main line in a big house, and they are just trying to sell their assets, and maybe I should. So I always thought that was my payback. So my parents called and said, we just read this thing, and, uh, you know, bless my parents. They, it was hard for them to understand this. I mean, last time I'd seen my dad, before I went on the run, I went up and handed him a, a briefcase and said, you know, I made some money, luckily, picking the right numbers, and it was 25 cash in there you know he didn't blink he just closed the, the cover and put it away you know <laughs> so sure. yeah so that was kind of cool and uh but it was hard to explain I, I just remember him at one point he said we came to visit me in jail i said well i just want to know one thing they say you were really the biggest in philadelphia or maybe the east coast is that true i said yeah, pretty much i guess it was he says well i'm glad you did it right if you're going to do it ah, <laughs> shout nice. out to pops so, yeah. so you know, normally the story kind of cuts off. You go to Virginia Beach, and then you make friends with an FBI agent, which probably wasn't a particularly <laughs> savvy move in the, long, yeah, <laughs> in the long run. And then they send out pictures uh, to all the retired FBI agents, and he gets your picture. And that's how, after the family went on the run, that's how you went down the second time. So that's two years later, right? Yeah. So what I think is really a shame is that when everyone tells these stories of drug dealers, and, uh, they, the story is all about the drug dealer. And I think the more interesting thing in my story is the life on the run, to tell you the truth. 
how I did the fake IDs, how I you know bought houses, how I bought businesses, and and doing all these things. I mean, this guy wasn't any FBI agent. He was the head of Russian surveillance. You know, and, uh, he was he had retired, and. I had befriended him just because he came up to me and asked me one day about a wreck I had found and that he wanted to fish on that wreck. I didn't know it was FBI at the time. Then I go into his house and there's all these trophies, these awards <laughs> from Hoover, you know? I mean, yeah. were you just like, you know, were you about to crap your pants? I mean, you walk into this guy's house, you're like, oh my God, this is an FBI agent. I was, but you got, you got to understand, this is a little bit of a long story, but he had confided in me so much that you don't realize that someone in the government position like that, once they're in that position, are always going to be like that. But he he retired, goes down there and gets a boat, goes, you know, he and his wife uh, go out and sleep on the boat and have sex. And the next day he goes off to work as the state trooper, the state trooper in charge of um, lie detector, like, like a contract person, you know. If someone robs a bank, they bring him in, he does a lie detector. Well, they give him a call, there's a problem in the house, he comes back, his wife has shot himself. He tells you none of his friends know this. He's telling me this, you know. And now his kid, who was like assistant governor or DA or something in Alaska, they find him in a garage with a vacuum hose in his car, and he's asking me. Somehow he knows I know a little bit of medical. Do I think this stuff is hereditary and all this? And so we were fairly close. His kid walks in once, and his kid naked, uh, screwing his girlfriend on the couch, smoking pot. This is his stepson. He's about remarried. And who was he called to come talk to him? Me. You know what I mean? So it wasn't like a casual relationship. And we were the two captains. We both had a boat. All our other friends were like the fishermen. So we didn't get drunk or whatnot. We made sure we got back. This was serious stuff. We're going 50, 60 miles offshore each time we go out, you know, so you could easily die of this stuff. And uh, so I expected if something happened, he would call me up and say, hey, Larry, the jig's up. you got to, you know, get your shit together and i got to take you in. But that's not the way it works, you know. And, uh, his, his, like yeah. you said, they're always they're, 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 he's still a, he's still a fed through and through. Before he's a friend, he's a fed before he's, he's a, fed, a friend. Fed, yeah, exactly. My mistake was I tell my brother I met ex FBI, and I didn't realize the the government's recording this conversation. He set up this call. Did you say that in kind of a braggadocious way? No, I just somehow he asked me something. I said, Rusty, you can never be too careful. I, I can't believe I met ex FBI even, you know, and. Uh, and like he's asked me what time it was there, and I got really worried when he said that because he knows he shouldn't ask me anything like that. So I gave him some time. It was like mountain time. And so, mm. and, uh, but I, I remember coming back and telling Marsha, I think we've got to go on the run. I really think Rusty might be cooperating now. And I knew that Ken had been my ex-partner because someone saw him in the library looking at statistics as to how many dentists were in the community. People do that when they're thinking of resettling, you know. Mm. And I got a message from his lawyer uh, through someone else I'd called that, your friends are no longer your friends. They're all working against you. And he was letting me know that his client, even though I had paid the fee, it was his client was cooperating. Right. So, so, so how much time do you end up doing? 19 and a half years. And um, so I had a 42-year sentence. Right. And I, you know, I ended up getting maybe three or four years you know, I saw the pro board, I think, four times. I Do you think in, that as a white guy, a rich, white, educated pen guy, that you got a lighter sentence for the amount of, the amount of stuff you're doing was insane, and there's people doing life for far less? I don't think so. I think it was actually the exact opposite. Like, really? Like, you read Judge Pollock and stuff, they talk about, you know, like... I should know better. You can understand, they do get time like that, but they weren't at this time. you got to look at I did a lot of research what people were getting for cocaine. I'm the only one in the history of the country that's gotten 
um, 22 year drug sentence on top of a 20 year IRS. No one else has gotten more than right. a 20 year IRS. So it was, the it was, the country, you know? it was 42 and, uh, and then you got it, you got it converted to 20. No, no. I, the different sentences. If you add up my oh, IRS okay, case okay. and then you add up the drug case, mm-hmm. you know, you look at the guy compared to me, Alfonso Capone, the judge, Judge Pollock. Al Capone only got 11 years, you know. But it, <laughs> right. later on, what you're comparing it to is later on the crack laws came out. And the crack laws were these insane mandatory minimums that these guys got, you know, in my, I would have got life for sure just for the cocaine amount. If you had 14 kilos, you got life under the sentencing guidelines. That's why I went up to the parole board. The guy said, Larry, you got this sentence, but how can I do anything for you when you had 280 times the minimum amount it takes to, uh, you know, to get life nowadays? And uh, so the same thing you were saying. But up to that time, you didn't see cases where people got life. You know, and we got to remember, it was a much more liberal time in the 70s yeah, and, you know, right early now. 80s. And it would have probably have happened had Len Bias not died. The guy right. who did my pre-sentence investigation, they set this up and they... They show the judge what they think you should get. He did every one of them in my case. He told my wife I should get 20 years. He called up the night before and said, I got to tell you, my boss came in and told me if I recommend 20 years to turn in my resignation. They said this <laughs> wow. too much political. After Len Bias died, remember the Boston sure. you know, Celtic that yeah. this guy? Everyone's looking to hang someone. The country went nuts. This, these Newsweek guys admit that they made up an eight-page story about crack and all this. He didn't even do crack to begin with, but... But still, I was like the first person on the docket. It was only like two weeks after that. So most people thought I was going to get 15 to 20 years, which is, I mean, this is what people were getting for math and things like that. No one was getting these life in 40 years. If you really look back at time, find me anyone that got 42 years for a drug sentence. Yeah, but you 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 only got 20-something years for the drugs and 20-something from the IRS. Yeah, but it's all the same case. I mean, you know, they, you know what I'm saying? They give you, all together, I had seven different counts. You know, you could say, oh, you got, you know, five years for this tax year, five years for that. I got 15 years CCE. I got four years for illegal use of a telephone device, three years for illegal use of a telephone device. You know, I kept getting all these different charges to add up. Most people, they make those things concurrent, but in my case, they made separate. So, so you think that, you think that the Len, Bi- Len Bias dying actually hurt your. Your totally. Case. I mean, yeah. I really think I would have got 20 years. <laughs> Thanks, Lynn. <laughs> Do you feel guilt or remorse for any of this? I feel guilt and remorse for a number of things. One would be what it did to my family. My kids grew up without me. What it did to the other people that were friends of mine and you know messed up their lives. As far as like people doing the drugs, sure. In the back of my mind, I should, but I'd have to know concrete examples. I just wasn't presented those. And everyone's going to say that's naive. But you got to understand, I knew a lot of people that did this stuff every day. Right. Or, you know, in, yeah, I but you're a smart guy, Larry. You know. Well, I, and I also know how many people went for overdoses to hospital in a year. I mean, the whole country was like 2,600. I remember the year that I got busted, you know, so it's not... It's huge in number. So I just wish people would realize that there's so much drugs. I still, as, as big as they say I was, I was really a tiny fish. And if so many people were doing recreational drugs, it's kind of like liquor, drinking. If 80% of the people drink and have no problems, there's some people that are always going to have problems. But we weren't dealing with like the street people. You know, maybe some of my people were. There's no doubt about it. But most of our stuff was college kids. So it's just partying and that type of thing. So, yeah. uh, what's, you know, what's your relationship like now with your with your kids? You know, I talk to them every, once in a while, and uh, they're all doing real well. Right. And um, 
I'm happy with that. So this story kind of bores them. It's kind of funny that they don't um, yeah. they don't get all worked up over that type of thing. So they dealt with it pretty well. You know, they've been shell. You know, a couple of times I could have done things like 60 minutes, and my wife at the time asked me not to because you know they were in grammar school or something. But you know, they're much older now, and uh, that's about it. You know, what, what's See your what's your doing? what's your life like now? You live down in Tampa. You recently got remarried, I believe. Right, not yet. Probably in May or something okay. like that. And, uh, we've had a few medical issues this last year we we're dealing with, and, uh, but yeah, I um, I'm really lucky. I have a 41 year old fiance. And, uh, nice, oh, good, snap. Look good, at this. Larry. Yeah, <laughs> right in the cradle there, brother. <laughs> yeah, and she's just the most beautiful black girl you've ever seen. Oh, oh yeah, I love brown, ladies I love, love cool. Sugar. Ladies I like love it. cool. I like, laughing. I like it. I like it. I like it. And uh, we've been friends now and we're living together for, I guess, five years. I have a house out in, the, in New Tampa. Mm-hmm. And New Tampa. I I so some of that, 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 some of that money got buried in a, in a, in a, I ain't gonna, I ain't gonna put you on blast Larry. but you, right. it seems like you, you know, yeah, you, there, there yeah, was a couple yeah, ditches yeah, with some yeah, money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm always being asked, did you dig up any PVC? That's yeah, what, uh, yeah. But I have a decent job in that I went to this call center from the halfway house and I don't know, within a few weeks, I was a top salesman. Next thing you know, it's kind of like Wolf of Wall Street. Next thing you know, I'm running the shift. Next thing you know, I'm director of operations. And uh, mm-hmm. that that moved on. Some people complained that I had a felony, some of the clients. So I eventually became the guy who built out all their new centers. Okay. So it's not unusual. Like I was in San Antonio this year. It took me maybe three, four months, went down there and took a 36,000 uh, square foot building mm-hmm. and made it like a 300-seat call center. It's like state-of-the-art and, mm-hmm. you know, put all the IT stuff in and whatnot. But you're, you're, so done, with, you're, done, with, you're done with the life. The life's over. The, that part life's of Life's over. Yeah, yeah, it's just too risky nowadays and I have yeah. no ambition to do that. Yeah. And uh, it's funny because people always ask that. How can you just settle down? Well, I tell you, if you're ever on that bus going from prison to prison, you look down, you see these people in their Pintos or something, they're all bored with their life and they're if they ever realize what yeah, it's like would, to yeah, have to yeah, sit in there, yeah, you know, yeah. you, you won't be bored. So, yeah. you know, I definitely learned my lesson. You think of that 19 and a half years. I mean, when I talk to a lot of kids, they're only that old. Right. You know, think right. of if your whole life to that age and you've been in jail. It's a, it's a, was, a that, was the high, was the high of everything you went through of being kind of the king of Philly to some degree, was that at all worth what you ended up paying, the price you ended up paying? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, a lot of people think people do that just to become that position and say, like, I do feel sometimes that was my city. I could get an awful lot done, whether, you know, with the police or whatever. I could get a lot of things done in Philly. But it really was more the financial security. you got to understand that's what drove me all the time. I just wanted to be, I, you know, I would go to the pool club that my parents belonged to and be turned away so we didn't pay our dues. I didn't want my kid to ever have to do something like that. Right. You know? i got to say, I feel so, that, Larry. Like, yeah. like I grew up. Like, I was Catholic boys' school. I get called to the office because I didn't pay whatever. I couldn't right. register for classes. And I couldn't go to prom. And I went to college all on my own. But I didn't start dealing drugs. I was just working, right. like, little side hustles. Like, what is it that made you Well, I remember saying that to Sid Perry. I said something like the FBI guy. said something like, you know, Sid, I grew up poor. He says, Larry, I grew up without running water. I had to go to a stream to get water where I grew up, you know. 
I realized right. I was barking up the wrong tree there. Right. I had to make I had to make my own water. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did a, I did a whole <laughs> summer with no gas, so we had cold, okay. ice cold water all summer. That was like thirty second showers at the most. Right, like, right, but right. I never. I was too scared of the law. I don't even drive. Right. Like, I don't even speed now. So, what made you? I think I probably had larceny in my soul. There's just no question yeah, about it. You know? yeah, but, uh, yeah, that, yeah. That's the bottom line, that I ah. saw that possibility. And, uh, you went for it. We're going to close out. This is a little segment we call the Philly Blunt. We're going to ask you quick questions and just give us quick answers, first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. All right. I'll start it off. Best piece of advice you ever got? Don't trust anyone. <laughs> Greatest meal you've ever had in Philadelphia? Oh, I'd have to say it was at, um, oh God, what's the seafood place? There's oh, book a few binders? Bookbinders. There's Devin's. Bookbinders. Devin. But I, I actually also Open like 80s. the Italian place that was, um, yeah, I'd go to Lebec Finn a lot, but... Yeah, that guy. He'd take me down to that basement. George Perrier. Like yeah, yeah, George Perrier, Philly legend. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was funny. He was always trying to have me get parties there, and you can imagine what he was looking for. You know. Oh and, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I remember one time he had me Ladies. down there. I went through like five thousand dollars in wine, and came back and threw up. My wife, who at the time was drinking Gallo wine, said, "See what you get." You know, it was funny. But, uh, <laughs> I love that place. But there's the salon, the saloon. The saloon. Oh, the saloon's yeah. still here. Yeah. Saloon's still here. Yeah. Great shout steak. out to the saloon. I, yeah. Still solid. I yeah. love that. I love that place. What is your favorite movie drug dealer? I think Tequila Sunrise. To me, if you remember that movie, he was nonviolent, and uh, you know he's just enjoying his life. And he's trying to kind of get out, and no one wants to let him out. Uh, you've had two books written about you, but what's something people still don't know about you? Huh. They called me Fang as a kid because I had a tooth that didn't come in all the way. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So my real good friends still call me Fang, you know? Nice. <laughs> favorite uh, favorite sports car you've ever owned? Because I know you were a car guy. Uh, the BMW, you know, I've had the, the 7 Series. I had a 6 Series. But I'd say the 7 Series with a stick that I had was my favorite car. Nice. When's the last time you did cocaine? Uh, <laughs> Let's say it's been some time. Like that, <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that the stuff out there isn't that great anymore. That's, that's, that's <laughs> how would you what know? How, how, wait, how do you know? <laughs> what Just word on the street? The quality of marijuana <laughs> that's now. the word on the, the street. Marijuana is so good you can barely do it. But, uh, <laughs> right, yeah, mm-hmm. I know. Uh, city yeah. you most want to go to that you've never been? I'd like to see Toronto, I think. Oh, it's my favorite city in the are, world. Are you, uh, honestly, are you allowed out of the country? Toronto would never Yeah, I'm totally me. off. I have no obligations to anyone as far as, okay. you know, uh, okay. rolling. Yeah, you but can. there are restrictions. Toronto, Toronto, Toronto you can make happen. Canada is Let's very tough let's, to get into. Let's do it, Larry. You can't go to Canada with a felony. Oh, no, it's very right, tough to get right. into. Yeah. You oh. can't go to Japan with a felony. But, yeah. you know, I'd like to go to Greece. And I'm trying to pick out where we'll go for a honeymoon. We'll go oh, to right. someplace eh, nice. Toronto, and, uh, Toronto uh, I've been there. It's okay. Best, a lot of people jack it up. Best city in the world. Yeah. All right, Larry. Great talking to you guys. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Dr. <laughs> okay, have a Thanks, great man. night. And, uh, sometime send me a link and tell me how I uh, listen to that thing. Absolutely. You got it, man. Do it. Okay. Thank, Thank you, man. Buddy. Okay. Take care. Have a good night. Yep, Bye, later. Bye. 
All right, well, we want to uh, we want to send a uh, shout out to O'Neills for having yeah, us here tonight. Of course. Like, Ironically enough, I don't know if no one brought this up. I wasn't going to do it because I didn't know if that was like going to be like a, a thing that like uh, triggered him or whatever. But his his alias was Brian O'Neill. Oh, so nice. O'Neill's so Oh O'Neill. shit! <laughs> nice God, Reef. Oh, damn it, nice Reef! You waited till the end to. Talk. I wasn't. I didn't know if that was something that like he might have been like, yeah, yeah, it was, and start crying or something. <laughs> oh come on, come on! He loves so telling the story. O'Neil. Yeah, yeah. Shout yeah. out to O'Neill's, but man, now I feel we're gonna, this is gonna be in all the that was his name all in, the, in the promos Virginia. on yeah. Twitter and Facebook. And it, I thought oh, maybe you did that on purpose, no, but then I realized no. you didn't. No, you're the genius. <laughs> we're just. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Love, love O'Neill. His, his, his alias when he went on the run was Brian O'Neill. Brian so, O'Neill. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. my God. We got Bartender Phil from uh, the Johnville podcast. Subconsciously, I was thinking that the whole yeah, yeah, time. That's, I, I, knew, I knew it. I knew it, yeah. man. I knew it. There was something it. there. Something All right. there. All right. We want to uh, thank everybody for listening, and we hope to uh, catch you next this time. One, this one might have to be a two-parter. This is the sound of Philadelphia. Covered in blood, the man's office is covered in bugs. The youth dreams cut short. Swept-